I'm Krista Tippett. Today, we remember legendary interviewer Studs Terkel, who chronicled decades of ordinary life and tumultuous change in American culture until his recent passing at the age of 96. I sat down with Studs Terkel at his Chicago home a few years ago and drew out his wisdom and warmth on large existential themes of life and death. A lifelong agnostic, Studs Terkel also shared his thoughts on religion as he'd observed it in his conversation partners, in our culture, and in his own encounters with loss and mortality. I happen to be an agnostic. You an agnostic is, don't you? Cowardly atheist. I myself don't believe in any afterlife. I do believe in this life. And what you do in this life is what it's all about. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. This public radio podcast is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. I'm Krista Tippett. He was called the man who interviews America, a legendary character. This hour, we explore the late Studs Terkel's accumulated wisdom on the big questions of life, loss, and mortality. A contented agnostic, he believed that taking death seriously means taking life seriously. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, Studs Terkel on life, faith, and death. Studs Terkel was best known as a Chicago radio personality. He was also a playwright, a sportscaster, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. On air and in writing, he chronicled ordinary life and tumultuous change in American culture. He had a deep knowledge of music and the arts, history, and politics. Studs Terkel also had a singular gift for inviting others to give voice to their lives, especially what they know and do well. This morning, we have as our guest a distinguished young American writer. I was about to say novelist, but I realize now his fields are, include more than the novel. Gore Vidal. Mr. Vidal. And David Hockney is, is uh, without a doubt, the most celebrated of all British painters living today, perhaps of the century. I'm seated in the very gracious apartment of Madame Simone de Beauvoir, 11 Bisou, Chelsius, in Paris. I see we're surrounded by books, typewriter writings. Mahalia Jackson, I guess, this morning. Mahalia, I'm thinking about you and this song. Now, I've known you since about 1946. That'd be about 17 years you've known one another, Mahalia. That's right. I think about this song. Arthur Miller, distinguished American playwright, memoirist, and for that matter, president of Penn, the International Writers' Congress. But now and then someone comes along. We're talking about technology, electronics, music. But someone comes along who's an original, and Laurie Anderson is definitely an original. When I interviewed Studs Terkel at his home in Chicago in 2004, he was in recovery from a serious fall. His famous voice was a bit weaker than it used to be, but as full of passion as ever. We met in his day room, which was overflowing with books, old and new, many of them written by people he'd interviewed. In one of his most beloved books, Working, Studs Terkel drew Americans out on how they spend their days. So I began our conversation by asking how he'd come to understand the humanizing power of an interview. And what was it in his approach, I wondered, that allowed such a range of people not only to open up in his presence, but to achieve an honesty, even a wisdom that they had scarcely known in themselves? You've got to start in the beginning, history. The publisher happened to catch some of my interviews of different people. These were known people, like Bertrand Russell, mm. Brando. And he said, how about you doing a book about ordinary people and their lives? Because he just published a book about China, about what happened after the Mao Revolution. And he said, why don't you do one about an American village? Chicago, in the middle of its own revolution, right. early 60s, cybernetics, the civil rights, the anti-war, the various things. That's how it began. The ordinary, non-celebrated people, the ones, 
celebrities, by and large, are a pain in the ass. You know, <laughs> no, they are because you know they say the same thing. Right, it's they've the, said it too many they, times. They, they had to push the movie they're in, the, right. push the book they're in, so that means nothing at all. Now, why did I choose these people? A certain kinds of people. Now, this applies to all the books. Well, they're not ordinary people. That is, they are and they're not. Right. So talk to me about what it is that happens in a conversation when it is really special. There's no one way. For example, this is my very first book. I was visiting a housing project, but it was mixed. Now, back in the early days, you know, housing projects were quite good, you know, were very good. Placing, replacing tenements and shacks. And so this woman I'm visiting, and I don't recall if she's white or black, she was light-skinned, she was very pretty, I know that, skinny, about four little kids running around. They're excited, Mama's got this thing in front of her. She was never interviewed before. The tape recorder itself was still fairly new. And she's talking to me. And as she talks, I talk too, you know. And we become friendly-like. And I said something that either angered her or made her feel good, I forget. And then they finished the interview. I feel kind of good. I got a hunch of something here. I don't know why. I just feel kind of good. But the big thing is those kids... There's five, six-year-old kids jumping around the house. They want to hear mommy's voice. They know it plays back. And I said, you be quiet now. Now, don't jump around so much. You be quiet, and I'll play it back for you. And so I'm playing back the voice that she herself never heard before. She never heard herself talking, or in this case, thinking as well as talking. And suddenly she said something on the microphone she heard as the kids are dancing around. And she puts her hand to her mouth and says, Oh, my God. I said, What? And she says, I never knew I felt that way before. Well, that's a great moment. She's saying, I never knew I felt that way before. It's only a discovery she's made as well as I making one. So as though we're both on a journey. Anyway, you might say we're both on a sort of journey. And do you think that the presence of another person, of you, the conversation partner, makes that kind of discovery possible? Well, it would depend who the other person is. Not is. We're all basically human. What the person has in mind is to make the 5 o'clock news... Right. Is it to say to a mother whose child is dying in her arms, there was a slum fire? How do you feel? You know, I'm giving you a horrible example, of course. But depends what the purpose is. My purpose is, what is it makes people tick? Studs Terkel, who recently passed away at the age of 96... I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. This hour, we're exploring Studs Terkel's collected wisdom on faith, life, and death. I interviewed him in 2004 at his Chicago home. In 2001, Studs Terkel had published the one book he said he never thought he'd write, An Oral History of Death. He called it, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Reflections on Death, Rebirth, and Hunger for a Faith. Characteristically, he spoke with people from all walks of life and American culture, doctors, firemen, policemen, gang members, social activists, musicians. 
Death is not a subject that comes easily, and Studs Terkel found that when given a chance to reflect, most people didn't experience it as a one-time encounter at the end of life. As he asked people to reflect on the experience of death in their lives, story upon story emerged. They described the deaths of co-workers and neighbors and people close to them, of their own brushes with mortality, of the questions of meaning such experiences always seem to raise. When Studs Terkel began to research that project, he was 86 years old. He had survived a quintuple bypass and, as he put it, other medical adventures. And then Ida, his wife of 60 years, died. I asked Studs Terkel whether her death drove that project forward. Well, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, did her dying have play a role in writing the book? I'm sure it did to some extent because it was... 60 years. Yeah. We were married 60 years. Well, as you know, she looked quite young, you know. It wasn't that the way she felt. Mm-hmm. See, why do I still feel like a girl, you know? And so a couple of days before she died, our neighbors across the way, Laura Watson, uh, looked at, and she sees this girl in, uh, what are they called? Denim things, the Levi's. Jeans, you know? yeah. He's this girl with a, with a daisy in her hair, plucking the weeds out of the garden. Says, Who's that girl? He says, oh, my God, it's Ida, you know, who was 87 at the time. <laughs> oh. Well, in any event, did that play a role? It's hard to answer. Well, that was a book was a revelation to me as well. Remember that I've hit various aspects the Great American Depression, history, World War II, uh, working, jobs people mm-hmm. do, race, black and white, and growing old, age does, all variety aspects. What haven't we touched along the line? Death. <laughs> How do you talk about death? And then my wife died. It hit me. Of course, I'd play a lot of folk music and other stuff. Among them was With the Circle Being Broken. And With the Circle Being Broken, as you know, is a very familiar folk tune. The right. Carter family sang, or the others wrote it. That song, of course, deals with mortality, immortality, and family. Right. Family, of course. With the Circle Being Broken. And the emperor is, no, it will not be bad English, you know, unbroken. Mm-hmm. And that's more or less how it came about. I was standing by the window on one cold and cloudy day and I saw the hearse come rolling for to carry my mother away Oh, can the circle Unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by. There's a bitter home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. One of the people who I recall most vividly from Will the Circle Be Unbroken was the man who'd spent years on death row. On false. Oh, I just got a letter from him the other day. Well, and D- I think, yeah, D- Delbert, Delbert, Tibbs. Delbert Tibbs. He was one of the most articulate and wise. Delbert Tibbs. I meet him. How do I meet him? Yeah, Through friends, friends. Him? There's a committee to fight the death penalty. And Rob Warden is one of the guys I know. And he says, you got to meet this guy, Delbert Tibbs, who's now being freed because he was obviously innocent, the DNA, everything else. Mm-hmm. But he was a black guy. Hitting the road. He likes to hit the road a lot. Who, by the way, reads scripture a lot. He's religious, but he's also a skeptic. And he... And he's eclectically he religious. Brushes, he's very eclectic. To use your word, yeah. He brushes up on the Koran and the right. Talmud. And the Buddha. But mostly his articulateness, not his articulateness, his... A sense of goodness about him. Doesn't he looks like you're sharpie? He looks perfect, you know, 
skinny, mustache, hot shot, but it's precisely the opposite, you see. Hmm. Well, you found him quite moving. Here's a passage from Studs Terkel's book, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? It's an excerpt of his interview with former death row inmate Delbert Tibbs. Tibbs' murder conviction was overturned for lack of evidence, but only after he had spent two years on Florida's death row. When I meet people now, if they try to make a big deal about me having been on death row, I sometimes gently remind them that we're all on death row. The difference is that here, the state's going to do it. And at some point, you're going to know the date and the hour. But that's the only difference. I believe life is endless. We can't talk about life without talking about death. We can't talk about death without talking about life. I was listening to the Dalai Lama. I read his autobiography, and he says that Buddhists often meditate on death. That's total anathema to the Western mind, right? I think it has something to do with Greek culture, with its bifurcation of existence. This is life, and this is death. I learned to meditate before I went to death row. That's one of the things that helped me get through, but it was very difficult. What I've discovered is all of the holy books are marvelous. Absolutely so, including the Bible. The Bible has the most beautiful language of any book I've ever read, not to mention the fact that there's something there. God is there but I really do believe he's hidden. I believe the Jewish mystics who went into the Kabbalah know that. The Bhagavad Gita is the Bible to 300 million Indians and others who are not Indians. Thoreau and Emerson read it. Krishna says, there never was a time when you and I did not exist, and there will never be a time when we cease to be. He said, this body wears out like garments, and when a garment wears out, you take it off and you lay it down and you pick up another one and put it on. One of the terrible things about executions is to jump people off into the universe like that. I think for a soul to be wrenched from the body is for the soul to be in anger and in pain and in hatred. I believe it impacts negatively on our world, that probably a lot of the calamities that happen are a result of that sort of thing. I mourn for the whole world because it's such a horrible place so often. From Studs Terkel's interview with former death row inmate Delbert Tibbs, quoted in his book, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? So, you know, one thing that is very striking that I, I didn't expect is that your book about death, it's really a very religious book. Religious book. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of religion in it, all the way through it. I mean, did you know that, that those themes would be so prominent when well, you started Well, I knew that? religion would play a role in it. Well, I, to be fair, I happen to be an agnostic. Okay. You an agnostic is, don't you? Oh, yeah. No, a cowardly atheist. <laughs> and I'm an agnostic. But religion, well, you know the most religious people in the country are? Black people. And by far, you know, Gary Wills says, mm-hmm. Gary Wills wrote a, one of his books is one of the least known. It's called Under God, Religion mm-hmm. in America. Mm-hmm. And it's most, well, a great deal about African-Americans and the church. My friend who died recently, Vern Jarrett, was a black journalist. Vern is non-religious, but he felt the importance of religion when his son died. And he felt how important it was, that church, with all the ritual, with all the hours. It was Episcopalian, black Episcopalian, mm-hmm. but it was as long as a Catholic ceremony. Oh, high church, probably. Yeah, Anglo- it was a high Anglo- church. Anglo-Catholic, yeah. And it was forever and ever and ever. But it gave him solace. So in that sense, without being philosophical or about it, in that sense, the word is faith you've got, mm-hmm. faith. Now, the word faith and religion are one, not entwined so often. Oh, I have faith my ball team is going to win. Right. I have faith we'll win that lottery. But 
mostly tied up with God or with religion, faith in that sense. And so religion played a tremendous role in uh, the book. Mm-hmm. Well, it had to. It's hard to separate the two. Right. I think what your book chronicles is actually the way people live with religious ideas. And it's so much about asking questions, right, rather than having answers. Well, that's right. But it's woven all the way through these it, people's reflections. It's all through. In fact, I mentioned Vern. And he says, Vern Jarrett. Mm-hmm. And he says, I never dreamed I'd want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. And there's music in the back. <laughs> and he's, and yet, I needed that. See, I needed that. And so, the expression of religion, in the true sense of faith, mm-hmm. belief, since science and medicine said no, despite all the advances, last stage of cancer, no, there's something. The late Studs Terkel. This reading comes from Studs Terkel's interview about death and faith with his friend, the late Vernon Jarrett, a former Chicago Tribune columnist. It is in Vernon Jarrett's words. The question reoccurred when my son died. I had a hard time, uh, even when I was a strict churchgoer, believing that a loving God, a God that everybody says is such a loving God, would make sinners burn forever. I remember one time I burned my finger on the stove when I was a kid, and I said, oh, this is awful. I said, I wonder what it must be like to burn for an eternity. I used to have conversations with God. I'd say, why would you do a thing like that? I took a vow at my father's coffin that I had to do something with my life as a perpetuation of his. That's what I think really counts the most. I'm doing the same thing with my son, Much of what I do is on behalf of my son. I do a lot of volunteer stuff with kids, and it's really in his memory. I wish I were wrong about my doubts that I'd never, never, never see my son again. I have a tombstone. I want my name on it. I want to be buried next to my son. There's an old black spiritual that says, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine right now. Since we don't know the truth about any of this, you better let your light shine right now. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. From Studs Terkel's book, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Reflections on Death, Rebirth, and Hunger for a Faith. We've reprinted the entire interviews with Vernon Jarrett and Delbert Tibbs, as well as conversations Studs Terkel had with a Hiroshima survivor, writer Kurt Vonnegut, and the actress Uta Hagen. Read them on our website, speakingoffaith.org. Studs Terkel's passing gave us a chance to remember our time with this iconic American figure. For one of my producers, it was the sip of whiskey he didn't drink with him. You can read Trent's recollection on our blog, SOF Observed. For me, it was a chance to listen to that original conversation in Studs Terkel's Chicago home nearly four years ago. He was 92 then, but he still had the same energy, warmth, and curiosity that he'd brought to the many interviews he conducted over the years. We wanted to share this complete, unedited exchange with you. Download an MP3 of that full conversation and the program you're listening to now. They're both free. Get them on our website, podcast, and email newsletter, all at speakingoffaith.org. And after a short break, more of Studs Terkel's reflections on how thinking about death means thinking about life. Also, his thoughts on how the idea of death changed in our culture and for our children during his lifetime that spanned nearly a century. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. 
Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness, online at loveandforgive.org. And by Gather.com, the social network with substance, where people discuss their beliefs. You can join the conversation at Gather.com. And by Clarkson Potter, publishers of The Splendid Table's How to Eat Supper, a holiday gift idea for people who love to eat. Now available at SplendidTable.org. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, we remember Studs Terkel, who died recently at the age of 96. I sat down with him in his Chicago home when he was 92 and drew out his wisdom and warmth on the large existential themes of faith, life, and death. Studs Terkel was a renowned conversationalist, a playwright, disc jockey, and sportscaster. He was best known as a Chicago radio personality and for his award-winning books that chronicled ordinary life and tumultuous change in the 20th century world. Here's Studs Terkel in 1962, introducing an interview taped in Wales with the British philosopher Bertrand Russell. I'm seated in a very delightful room facing the mountains and the scene is so peaceful. I hope my pronunciation of the Welsh city is right. Uh, Penryn Didreth on this very lovely and peaceful Tuesday morning. I'm seated opposite the distinguished, the eminent British philosopher, Lord Bertrand Russell. And Lord Russell, you're seated here in front of the fireplace. The scene seems so peaceful, and yet the world outside seems so rife with tension, east, west, one accusing the other of being the villain of the peace and acclaiming himself the hero. Let me ask you a leading question, Lord Russell. On which side are you in this nuclear contest? I'm not in either side. I think the contest is folly. And... Uh... Studs Terkel continued to interview and write prolifically well into his 10th decade. He published four books in his 90s. The first, Hope Dies Last, was about people he called crazy in a celestial way, who sacrificed themselves physically and often economically for the good of others. His final two works included a memoir and, P.S., Further Thoughts from a Lifetime of Listening, which is just being published this month. In our conversation, I drew Studs Terkel out primarily on the themes of his 2001 book, which he called An Oral History of Death. He called that work, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Reflections on Death, Rebirth, and Hunger for a Faith. Studs Terkel carefully distinguished between the words religion and faith, and he told me about the complex relationship he had to both in his life. Faith is used, of course, in phony terms. There was a movie years ago called The Faith Healer, a novel. The Faith Healers, who are con artists, we know that, play upon the superstitions of people, religions, the faint hopes of people. Mm -hmm. And that's the faith healer. At the same time, someone will tell you that faith healers have their own kind of an effect sometimes. But religion and, see, the word faith, your series is called Faith. this book happens to fit right into it because it's all about faith. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are non-religious here and there. Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, I've just been reading his books and I, I was so happy to see him in there. He's called a secular humanist. Mm-hmm. Well, to him it's another thing entirely. Him it's the big sleep. But you wrote in the prologue to the book, you wrote, everything about this book became unexpectedly for me a journey into long-suppressed memories and all sorts of ambivalences in feeling of which I wasn't aware. Tell me about some of those ambivalences of feeling. I don't know how to describe that. Right now, see, I got this accident that changed my whole life, obviously. See, before I was would describe myself as an elderly man of some vigor. Now I'm just an old, old man, see. And I'm 92. That's pretty long. It's impressive. And a rather fruitful life. Mm -hmm. Number of books and documentaries and programs. It's pretty full. So I don't, and I'm not 
lying about this. I don't feel that, uh, in fact, what, after the accident occurred, and I was in pretty bad shape, I said, I don't mind kicking off. I'd like to finish this book. And so if I were to die in my sleep, I mean, I wouldn't feel that lost. I mean, I, I wouldn't feel that cheated at this stage of the game. So that's pretty good. Now, how I would have felt 20 years ago is something else. How you but even now. About faith or Even now, why book? am I here with my caregiver friend? Mm-hmm. You see, why am I here if I want? I don't want to die. Do I welcome death? Well, of course not. Would I like to live it out to see that? Yeah. Would I like to get better? Sure. Maybe there is a slight better. I can walk around with a cane now. I couldn't before. Have an appetite. I couldn't before. At the same time, not the same person. And so I still fight death. I don't welcome it, no. Do I fear it? That's a good... Now, here's where the truth and honesty come in. I'll probably lie. (laughs) I guess so. Well, in the first place, you have friends. Many of my younger... And I don't want to... I'm getting a kick out of things. At the same time, this daily having to have help now and then... I find humiliating. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, death does not mean the same thing as it would to you or to others of your contemporaries. It's interesting. Uh, as you say, when you set out to do this project, you were asking people to talk about the thing we never talk about, and yeah. most of us don't even like to think about. And I even found it hard to approach reading the book. But... When people start talking about death, and as you're doing now, you actually start talking about life. You right? see, now you come, see, you're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> now you come to the key of it, of course. Mm. How can you separate death from life? So the important thing about death is life. Mm-hmm. Because it's the end of something of which you are conscious and aware and have right. to some slight extent well, not much, unfortunately, at this moment, you know. Now, what have you done with your life? See, mm-hmm. now it comes the evangelical part. Now it comes the preaching part. I'm always doing that <laughs> because the books are political by nature. All mm-hmm. my books are because I think life is political. What you do during the time you're alive By the way, it's a book of many regrets, Mm -hmm. things you did not do or perhaps should have done, especially in many cases the people close to you. Mm -hmm. That's a big one, too. The late Studs Terkel talking about his book, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Reflections on Death, Rebirth, and Hunger for a Faith. Something else that people in the book always talk about, or it seems like they all talk about, even if they're atheist, is the afterlife, if there is one, or they've had to struggle with the question and answer it in some way. You called yourself an agnostic. So what does an agnostic do with the afterlife? Well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) For me, well, I want to be cremated, of course. Uh, Those are my wife's ashes. On the window, so mm. next to the daisies, which got kind of need fresh daisies, which were her favorite flowers. And I want my ashes mixed with hers and spread over Bug House Square. You got to know what Bug House Square is. Well, it's like Hyde Park in London. You heard of that? Yeah. <laughs> it's a famous speech corner. People mm-hmm. talk about everything. Oh, the subject often for years was India. And now it's the Middle East, of course. Yeah. So, 
but and so there's Bughouse Square in Chicago. Unfortunately, nobody goes there now. It used to be full of hundreds of people around the bar, and there were speeches, and they were funny and wonderful, and there were hecklers, and the hat was passed. So I have the ashes strewn around Bughouse Square. And if a lawyer tells me that it's against the ordinance to do it, I'll say, well, it's been done. Let him sue the ground, or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> to get it back. Why do you want your ashes scattered there? Well, because I was a kid, used to go there. It's right next to the Newbury Library, a big library in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I used to go to Newbury Library and read something on a Friday, and then uh, at 6 o'clock I'd come out, and now the guys had gathered soapboxes. Yeah. And it was very exciting. Yeah. Is that where you learned to love talking, do you think? Well, talking, of mm-hmm. course, and heckling back and forth. You asked about the afterlife. Right. Well, I can't take bets on it. Who's going to take my bet, you know? I myself don't believe in any afterlife. I do believe in this life. And what you do in this life is what it's all about. You know, one thing that struck me when I was thinking about you were born the year the Titanic went down. That's Oh yeah. That you know, that's so vivid. And also you talk about being a child with asthma. Lots of children have asthma now, but it's yeah. not generally life-threatening. Yeah. And, you know, the girl next door who died of scarlet fever. It struck me that death, maybe in a earlier generations in this country, was closer for a lot of children. Well, you know something? That's an interesting point. That never came up. I mean, could have brought that up somewhere in the book. That's a good point. You see, there'd be signs on the doors. Like the girl, the family below us. We lived on the fifth floor, fourth floor, then on the third floor. And I said, it said, scarlet fever, beware, see. Yeah. And she died of scarlet fever. She was about eight. Mm-hmm. But this matter of our kids acquainted with the idea of it mm-hmm. earlier. And yet we have more and more, thanks to TV and thanks to technology, right. we have everything. We have, in fact, see, I have this theory about no, no, nothing unusual about it. There's always a gun, and often it's a girl detective, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. holding the gun. But the gun, they shoot as often as the guys do. Yeah. And so there's the awareness of that death, which is of utter meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. But the personal aspects of death, mm-hmm. of the neighbor child, you see, that is something else. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you if if in your lifetime death had changed in the way people think about it. You just pointed to how, in fact, we've put death all around ourselves again in another form. In yeah, see, now, we, see, we make death suddenly have no meaning. Yeah. And by death having no meaning, life has no meaning. Remember, you can't separate death and life. Death means the end. That's it. Mm-hmm. And as to whether there's an afterlife or not, that's for each one to choose. I, by the way, I don't mock anybody. I know. I mean, if someone, my so many, speaking of afterlives, and you, you don't fault them for that, the belief, the need. But the big thing is, our kids are aware of death, its meaning, today. They see more of it. Phony, Airsat's death, right now. We'll see about five shows right now. Mm-hmm. And the death of who? Mm-hmm. And so one, one American knocks out ten of them. historian and longtime radio personality Studs Terkel, who died recently at the age of 96. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. I sat down with Studs Terkel at his home in Chicago in 2004 and spoke with him about the big questions of life, faith, and death. ¶¶ 
Let me ask you this. You interviewed people who'd encountered death in many different kinds of contexts and circumstances, in war, through illness, the woman who survived Hiroshima, who was there during the bombing. Um, She talked about that that was death without dignity. And I wonder if, if you found people to speak differently about the meaning of death and life depending on the circumstance in which they encountered. Well, there again, you see, uh, Tammy, you're talking about the, the Japanese woman who's now a hospital aide, mm-hmm. a psychiatric aide working on life. Hmm. And She's a little while girl. hers was so overwhelming, hundreds of thousands yeah. all over her, it wasn't a question of a single death. It was looking for her mother, hoping she could hear that familiar song that her mother sang. Studs Terkel interviewed Tammy Snyder in 1997. On August 6, 1945, the day her hometown of Hiroshima was bombed, she was 10 years old and she was home alone. We're talking to Hideko Tamura, Hideko uh, Snyder now. And one sunny day is a memoir, of course, that day being August 6, 1945. And so here's this girl searching the street, looking for you. You go to the village and you're asking, is Mrs. Kamiko Tamura here? You're asking people that. By the way, aren't you, weren't you calling out a song, too, that your well, mother... Well, I got to the point where I thought I cannot bear this anymore. And then so, of course, the last resort for me was prayer. And I said, God, please help my mother because I can't find her and I cannot help her. And, and I, every time I called out my mother's name, I was saying, oh, I hope I don't really find her here. Everybody looks terrible, you know. So I started to hum some of the songs that she used to love uh, to sing to me. And I, I said, you know, God, please carry this tune if you could and comfort her because I can't be there, but maybe you could. Do you, do you remember one of those? なもしらぬ時しまよりながれよるやしのみひとつふるさとのきしおはなれてなれはそもなみにうかん Something like that, you know. I didn't know you were going to ask me. <laughs> I just sort of kind of uh, remember. And, and that was one of her most favorite songs. She used to sing a lot. So I wanted that song also, you know, to come back to her. Yeah. Well, I can't talk for others, even though I put forth this book. Yeah. Still can't talk for others and their feelings about it. But did you hear common themes that surprised you or differences that surprised you? You know, the things that came up again and again that there were echoes of. Well, faith, mm. <laughs> as you think, uh, that, well, faith also could equal desperation, mm-hmm. you see. There's that, too. I say faith. So what's it called? There's no hope. There's no hope without someone who's so close to you. Well, to someone who's agnostic, it is envy of the person who has faith. Mm. Because at least they have that, that solace. You wish you were as, well, the word isn't innocent. Yeah, as innocent, I was going to say naive. That's presumptuous of me to say that. Okay, but beyond the solace, I mean, I wonder if you changed your way of thinking about faith or if it got larger in any way. Oh, well, did I? I don't know. I'll have to dwell. I'll have to stick with that for a while. Okay. (laughs) I'm too soon. Okay. 
Also with my own accident. Did it make you ask any questions about faith that you hadn't asked before? Oh, yeah, before? Well, it made me understand. It made me understand the power that it has, whether it's real or not, but the power that you think it has. It does have that. And you also understand why people are so religious out of, out of despair. Faith comes out of hope. It also comes out of despair. And what about these people you've, you've interviewed in Hope Dies Last, people who've really given themselves over yeah. to good and to helping others? Was faith a theme, an echo in that Well, book? there they are, certain kinds of people. Mm-hmm who have put themselves out on the line, those I call the crazy people, mm-hmm. who put themselves out on the line. Some are known, most are not known, but they're the, they're the ones who are out in their way to try to make this, a, using the phrase, a better world, which of course causes a snicker and a laugh these days. You see. They, by the way, they're... A good number of them have their own doubts, too. Yeah. There's still that feeling that there's something within people not yet tapped. It's about possibilities mm-hmm. within people, basically. But it's mostly about life. Again. It come, we come back. The book is not about death. The book about death. I say, no, it's about life, man. This, this was from Uta Hagen, the actress. She's not a religious person, I think, from the interview you did with her, but maybe more of the people in that book are. But she does have this definition of faith that creeps in. Faith, the miracle of creation, is what a human being is capable of communicating. It's not a private thing. It has to be communicated. She goes on to say, which is what I love about art, that you pass on. You enlighten people, you make them laugh, you make them cry. These are the things that make our life worth living. To me, that's art, that's my religion. I thought of, actually, when I read that about the work you've done and how you've spent your life listening and talking and helping people bring these things into word, turn them into words. And uh, I don't know, I wondered what you thought of that. Well, that's wonderful. Words. Of course, quoting Uta Hagenat, she was, you know, remember, that's an actress mm-hmm. talking. Not just an actress, a great actress. Mm-hmm. She's really talking about art, you see. Right, she's talking about communicating writ yeah, large. Yeah, and communicating. Mm-hmm. See, I opened her, remember I opened her with, with, with the aria from Tosca, Visi Darte. Mm. You know, when Tosca pleads with this police chief to leave her alone, that her life is for love and art. Mm. And art. The idea is art is long and life is short, you know. (laughs) That's a nice ending. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Studs Terkel died on October 31st, 2008, at his home in Chicago. He was 96 years old. His final book, P.S., Further Thoughts from a Lifetime of Listening, has just been published. That book includes transcripts from Studs Terkel's documentary of Voices from the Great Depression. In its preface, he writes this. The situation then was not too removed from the one we face today in the matter of joblessness and need. Today, we use euphemisms. Instead of depression, we say recession. But to the man and woman designated out of work, one is a synonym for the other. You can read excerpts and hear recordings from Turkle's oral history on the Great Depression on our website, speakingoffaith.org. We're also looking for fresh thinking and language for talking about the current economic crisis. 
what has happened and why, not just in terms of financial tools and strategies, but in terms of personal conscience and values. And we're starting a dialogue with wise thinkers in the realms of business, education, philosophy, science, and religion. We'll be posting these conversations on our staff blog, SOF Observed. Learn more and share your stories at speakingoffaith.org. The senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Sheck, Shiraz Janjua, and Rob McGinley Myers, with assistance from Amara Hark Weber. Our online editor is Trent Gillis, with web producer Andrew Dayton. Special thanks for this program go to Tony Judge and to the Chicago Historical Society. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. Additional funding is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. On the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, we seek to understand, really understand, the Sunni-Shia divide in Islam and how U.S. policy in Iraq has helped make Iran a regional superpower and transformed intra-Muslim dynamics. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media.